0: Welcome to episode 41 of The People. I'm Kay Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White.
1: And I'm Matthew Timmons. On this episode, our guests are Asher Hartman and Chelsea Rector. Asher Hartman is a Los Angeles-based interdisciplinary artist who primarily works in the context of theater.
2: And so in working on this play, I, I was very aware that I am going to be speaking to an art audience. I'm not speaking to... Any random group of people, these are the creative class members, and I want to talk about things that we don't talk about, uh, because I think that's what theater essentially does. It is a mechanism for excavating things that are in the deep uh, unconscious, but also things that we just can't say at the table, so to speak. Also joining our conversation is Chelsea Rector,
0: a Los Angeles-based interdisciplinary poet.
3: And it's, it's not... You know, it really isn't natural or normal to, um, as a viewer, um, sit in the presence of trauma, sit in the presence of historical trauma uh, or the telling of that historical trauma, right? The acting out of that historical trauma and part of the rehearsal process and a lot of the um, ancestral mining work is, you know, geared toward meeting that trauma
1: our conversation will center around asher hartman and the god-awful national theater's production of the silver the black the wicked dance recently at lacmas bing theater this past may 13th and 14th of 2016 this dark comedic play about predation in american life was written and directed by asher and chelsea rector was one of the performers in the production
0: And coming up later, we'll play you a couple audio excerpts from that production at the Los Angeles Contemporary Museum of Art here in Los Angeles. And we'll close out the episode with music from LA band Zigzags. The People
1: features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West
0: Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record magically repaired. You can listen to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Or you can find us on iTunes. Uh, by searching for The People Radio. And we're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. To
1: find out more, go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page.
0: Asher Hartman and Chelsea Rector, welcome to The People.
1: Yeah, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for being on. So, Asher, you had a production recently at LACMA, uh, The Silver, The Black, The Wicked Dance, and Chelsea, you were an actor in this in this piece. So tell us about that production.
2: Yeah, The Silver, the Black, the Wicked Dance at LACMA was an abstract play about predation in American life, about making oneself foreign and making others foreign, and um, it starred, if you will, Chelsea Rector, Philip Littell, Joe Seeley, Bryant, Zoot Lors, and Kensington Smith. Uh, most of the cast are artists and actors, um, and it was about 90 minutes in length. It involved uh, many of the structures of theater, but none of the plot, none of the conventional narratives.
3: Yeah, we're a theater company, too, and it was really exciting for all of us to work together in this space. Um The theater company is called the Godawful National Theater Company, and we're based in Los Angeles, and we perform in lots of different kinds of spaces and uh, oftentimes approach staging our work in a very uh, deconstructed, or shall we say, unconventional or abstract manner. So, for example, at the Bing Theater at uh, the LA County Museum of Art, we actually played the play backwards in that... A lot of the action took place in the house or the or traditional kind of seating rows, and then a lot of the audience sat on stage. Um, there was, of course, action happening on stage and in the house. But, um, you know, we kind of turned it on its head and really surprised people. Audience members were let in through the back or brought in to, you know, an extremely dark theater house. was really interesting to see people walking into the house and immediately turn their cell phone flashlights on, kind of like as a, of course, a precaution, but this amazing knee-jerk sort of response that we're all so trained to just do now. Um, For example, uh, myself and Bryant, who played the shooter, Started in the house as actors, so I was hiding in rows of seats, and sometimes there were audience members who were sitting in the house near me, say for, you know, overflow purposes and this and that. Uh, Bryant started kind of sitting further back in the house, and so we had this experience where we could watch people file in. Um, Paul Outlaw and Kensington Smith and Philip Latell were looking out into the house but on, you know, the side of a closed curtain. And a lot of the audience was then on stage behind the curtain. And so there were so many layers of reveal and tension and time unfolding in the entire theater space. And um, that is something that, you know, the Godawful National Theater Company really prioritizes as sort of activating floor to ceiling, corner to corner, the whole the whole structure the whole space and you know the plays that Asher has made take that on in very different ways so over the years I've been able to observe that sort of manifest in just a number of different ways you know aesthetically and in terms of time periods or you know histories that get evoked and this particular piece was very contemporary and it was set in a kind of present moment that I don't know for a lot of us does tend to feel overwhelming and excruciating and it felt like not a future kind of play or time but really about a present and a just weird alien-esque kind of now very contemporary
2: yeah you capsulate everything so well yeah I mean the play really is about the present and it's um, a very layered play and I should mention that The rehearsal process is such that we work with the actors' issues, things that the actors want to delve into very deeply, psychically and psychologically. And so the script is written for them, very specifically tailored to each person. And we will do uh, a range of experiments with, um, let's say, psychonautics, or theater exercises, um, conversations. I interview each actor at length um, about their um, aesthetic and artistic and um, theatrical interests, and also what they want to approach um, in a text. And uh, with Chelsea, um, Chelsea's a poet, so uh, and a very particular kind of energy that is Extraordinary to work with because she can handle text in a way that is very specific, very unique to her own uh, poetry, and uh, makes
3: for a pretty good actor. I, might, yes, <laughs> I must say, yes, yes, <laughs> it is incredible. In a way, yeah, that is that's how I understand the acting component for sure. But. Yeah,
2: yeah, and then I go away, and then I, if you will, like channel, or I write in whatever way writers write. Um, <laughs> you know, channel is a is, is a kind of an exotic word but I think really writers do that you know yeah. sort of get things from the ether from yourself from your own psychology and I make the text and then the text gets pared down or debated or rehearsed and tossed out and well we... and this
1: and this is a I mean channeling as a writing you know device is that's that's very. That's, like, a thing that has been a thing for a long time. Mm. But as far as playwriting, what you're talking about of, like, interviewing actors at, at length, like, your process is not, I would think, like, you know, a normal playwright process. <laughs> like, you you know, you wouldn't be, like, yeah, like, hanging out with your playwright buddies and be like, yeah, you interview your actors at length, right? And do, like, psychonautics with them, right? Yeah, no. Most people would be like, w- uh
2: no? No, I think yeah. the normal... Th- no, no yeah. Procedure: You write a play, and then you try to cast it, and you try to sure. find the right. right people for the role. Exactly. But
1: it's like you are you've you've truly inverted that in mm-hmm. a way.
2: Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, I don't know how everybody writes, but cool. for me, sure. Um, yeah, I'm I'm interested in the healing aspects of theater uh, because you do to be an actor, you have to go to a very deep and very scary place. I don't think you can make theater as an actor without that. And so I want to make something that's useful for the actor and for the audience, because when we, we do this process, the audience gets the result of it, essentially. People have often said to me, I don't know what's happening to me in your plays, because I don't, I don't have a narrative, so that um, an audience member can't follow a very particular sequence of events and arrive at a kind of moralistic conclusion, which is what really playwriting has been. For you don't have a time. traditional arc. No. In the characters or
1: the whole play tri- typically. No. But no. Would, but I mean because I saw this play at LACMA but I would say that and I've seen some of your other pieces and I would say that you have a lot of what I might call like smaller arcs especially between characters mm-hmm. um, or even in just one a, a single character in a moment can make a leap that is kind of may not be like a transformative leap, but characters will make these switches and, you know, make these changes and uh, the relationships between characters. Do they, I mean, they seem to have arcs that you're writing in,
2: like small arcs, but. Yeah, transformations perhaps. Yeah. And things shift probably because I have a very short attention span. <laughs> things shift really quickly in the play. Uh, Cause I can't perhaps, like I can't find the thread of a plot or in some way resist that. Uh, I don't know why I resist that so much, but I've heard people talk about plot as something that sort of fills in the body. It makes it very easy for the audience. It makes makes it uh, uh, reducible to this kind of narcotizing experience Mm -hmm. uh, where you're led very passively to a conclusion that I as a person cannot offer. I can't offer a moral. And that and that shifting and that uh, that intentional
0: irreducibility results in, uh, forgive me, but kind of kind of well, and the aesthetic of the thing results in this like schizophrenic thing, this sort mm-hmm. of maddening up and down roller coaster of something that's very sweet and safe to something that's very dark and dangerous, and then back up. Apparently,
3: yeah. yeah. I feel like um, as actors, we obviously have worked with Asher and oftentimes with each other going into a, a new piece. Um, certainly this, you know, the silver, the black, the wicked dance. We were all familiar with each other. Um, it's luxurious. We got to go in with a lot of intimacy to begin with. Um, and part of how I know many of us are able to kind of take on this strange process and structure that is Specific to our company and Asher's process and, and work is um, sort of just sharing this, I think, actorly understanding of allegory and archetype. And that the role of the actor is to kind of like a shapeshifter, allow those surfaces to reveal themselves and be malleable in the moment. And the work is very comedic. I mean, it's super dramatic and terrifying and painful. And I can attest to having gone to some very scary places over the course of the past year working on this this piece, The Silver, the Black, the Wicked Dance. But ultimately, Asher has a very innate comedic sense and ability. And I mean, it's Asher's also an amazing teacher. And that's actually how we met um, Asher... Was is still teacher of me of mine. Um, we met at UC Riverside. Asher used to teach painting there. At any rate, um, comedy is very necessary and it's very important and um, it moves the textures of the play. And these are all things that Asher's actors really understand and have like a you know f- very sophisticated kind of you know ability to To work with and work around, um, so you know those are those are some things that I feel like really help. You know the technique, the technique of the work. It's it's uh, it's extremely technical work. Yeah, it doesn't have a traditional narrative plot structure, but my God, there's uh, about a billion and one other things going on that <laughs> are real and creating very real time. Yeah. So. Um,
2: It's very rigorous. Yeah. And very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, because there are a lot of technical things that go into obviously acting, Mm -hmm. to deconstructing the idea of a theater, Mm -hmm. to presenting something that's both very emotionally raw and um, funny and shifts very quickly. So, for example, if you have a moment where... Uh, You're trying to cover a sense of shame, for example, as an actor, and the next moment you have to be very vulnerable to somebody else. Mm -hmm. That shift is very hard to negotiate. You don't do that in life, actually, as fluidly as you might do it in theater. It's very artificial. Mm -hmm. But I'm also really interested in using entertainment and all the tropes of entertainment Mm -hmm. as a vessel or a sleeve for political messaging. Because the plays, and this play in particular, I consider them all very political. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a huge fan of very didactic, polemic theater. And I do think that as Americans, we like our entertainment. And we can, you know, take the pate down our necks <laughs> with with the... Yeah, with the entertainment devices. Uh, but I think that that's... Useful and I love cheap entertainment. I love um, high school plays. I love YouTube videos, Vine videos. I love Taco Bell, (laughs) you know,
3: Flaming Hot Cheetos. Uh Yeah, who don't? (laughs) Munchkins, Chester's Pubs. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Munchkins. There you go. Yeah.
2: All the specifics of American
0: life. You're listening to the people on K Chung, 1630 a.m. Before we get back to our conversation, let's listen to an excerpt from The Silver, the Black, the Wicked Dance. The performer's voice that you'll be hearing is our guest, Chelsea Rector.
4: Oh, I know I got it. You got it. Oh, I got it. I'm good. Uh, ee,
3: uh. Uh, uh. Uh, 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 uh. ee, uh. I... I got it. I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I could. I could easily form a vowel that you wouldn't like. But I come from a place, and I
4: will. What? You.
3: My God, it's 11-D and I'm hungry. I've been waiting here for five years. You got chicken nuggets? (laughs) I say chicken. Chicken is. I want some McNuggets in my hand. Mm -hmm. Right here. Right here. Right now, please. Uh, you, young miss, you could have taken it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, oh junk cut. Hot Cheetos in your mouth. Mm. Right. She was that prime cooked. Mhm, yeah. She? She was that blank feeling. Oh! <laughs> Ranch?
4: <laughs>
3: I'm here. I'm hungry. I got the money. I just need the nuggets.
2: Yeah, well, I'm actually very curious, Chelsea, what the rehearsal process is like for you.
3: It is like having all of the therapy and all of the camaraderie or team playing and all of any kind of academic learning i could ever want wrapped into one it's just fabulous (laughs) um but it's also like on on getting closer to say when the show is to show it gets really painful and difficult and i think we all understand that that is because we're getting closer to the characters that we're building respectively um It's really, really remarkable to rehearse with Asher because Asher stays the same the whole time as like a grounding energy and support person and like a viewer and a note taker and a feedbacker. Um, And that being said, it's really important because of the way – we as actors in this company like manifest the characters, and it is really, you know, rigorous and and it can be very straining. Um, rehearsals aren't really that fun. Um, I will say that yeah, they're not light or you know goofy. Um, there are rehearsals where we're all sitting around a table eating Cool Ranch Doritos, Flaming Hot Cheetos, and God knows what else. Black you all coffee. said you were healthy <laughs>
2: when I started this. It's true. Yeah,
3: interesting. I haven't. You know, I haven't gained any weight, but that's probably because I'm running around like a manic psychopath <laughs> now. Just the world. <laughs> oh my god. But um, yeah. I mean. Rehearsals are very hard work, and part of what makes it hard, I think, for me very privately and personally is that I get to go to rehearsal, and I get to work with these people and have this language and this guidance, and, um, you know, I take that very seriously, Uh, and and it comes with specific kinds of obligations and... um, I have a sense of responsibility around that.
2: Yeah, I always imagined that the rehearsal process was really painful. Mm-hmm. And I say somewhat take responsibility for that. Um, I feel like that painful process does yield performances that are yeah. pretty startling. Mm-hmm. I have to say that everybody in the company, um, they're they're very experienced. They're very sophisticated. Uh, many people have dual or even triple identities in mm-hmm. the theater or the opera or as writers or as visual artists, um, builders, sculptors. So everybody does retail sales. retail sales, retail sales. <laughs> everybody has a lot of that, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but everybody does at least three or four things. So sometimes people will even in the case, for example, of Joe Seeley make the actual theater mm-hmm. or build costumes or make props and, um, all of that while at the same time being asked to really delve deeply into their own unconscious and also aspects of self that are not readily uh, available on the surface and also not always the best parts of ourselves, Mm -hmm. things that are are fragments, things that are rejected aspects of self that we actually have to inhabit Mm -hmm. for some time. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's extremely difficult
3: it is because you have to discover how it's real and then share that as as a performer as an actor and asher helps elicit that energetic information or like body technology um it's like for me i think a lot kind of like having a yoga practice or an understanding of dance Um, there is all kinds of work happening within the body. And, you know, because we have this obligation to use language and act, we then are using our, you know, frontal lobe mammal brains to articulate some very inarticulable circumstances. Um, We do a ton of, um, you know, ancestral mining work which is very you know psychic and energetic and we help do that um, you know as a kind of company group and then you know work kind of one-on-one or individually to like understand the information that comes up there that helps actors ultimately gain a more clear sense of you know what they bring as a body as a being um and and that's that's slippery and it's a lot of the body in terms of asking to get into a space of subtlety where you can like hear and feel and receive and and make more real certain things that i mean in, in any given day at any given moment you're either expected not to listen to or completely desensitized to um, you know, it's a it's an entirely activated space that we're that we try to make. Mm. Um, so is,
1: is the rehearsal process kind of a writing and rewriting process as well? Or I mean, it is. Yes, correct? Yeah. yes, it is. Um, but
3: Asher's protective about the actual mechanics of writing. I feel like you really like prompt us, watch us, help us maneuver.
2: Yeah, but it's. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I was curious, too, because you're a poet, what it's like for you to embody someone else's language as fully as you do.
3: I mean, it's really overwhelming um, at a glance or initially. I've discovered that we really can live in language. And and I think as an actor, the big gift is is actually making a kind of physical space around the language in which to, like, literally step into or assemble yourself according to. And um, luckily, Asher and I have similar sense of humor. We get along really well. Sometimes I think we're twins. (laughs) So for Asher to write lines for me is really fun because I, I do have like a sense of the syntax kind of immediately which is just wonderful Um, and yeah it's really I mean it is really immense Uh, not because I don't have an understanding of maybe what the context of a line might be but because I get to sort of explore with Asher's help and guidance oh what if we tweak this this tiny bit or what happens if I you know, reel back in just such a way. So yeah, I mean, it it kind of really um, it privileges language in the sense that you just begin to understand, my God, like it is an embodied thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I keep wanting to break in and ask about the the conceptual underpinnings or the intention of the piece, but it's you're in describing the rehearsal process, it seems
2: like that it's that's the same conversation. I think so. I mean, you talked about ancestral callings. Uh, We did work with this idea of real or imagined ancestors. And so for each person, that experience elicited shame or anger or confusion or loss or inability to contact those people, confusion about who those people might be. And For me, I think real or imagined, our ancestry plays out in the present in ways that we're not always completely aware of. So we actually started with this idea of white shame and white guilt in the beginning uh, with a triangle of three white actors, Um, talking about that until I think we couldn't Tolerated any longer. <laughs> Doesn't take long. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah. the but the the
1: piece of the play starts off like kind of I mean the first few lines like as an audience member I felt that conversation right away and mm-hmm. I hadn't read much about the play before going in um, and I pretty much picked up pretty quickly that I felt it was about various senses of alienation mm-hmm. and shame playing off of each other. And, the, I mean, the different characters. Yeah,
2: definitely. And um, that is a very difficult thing. I mean, shame is a very difficult feeling to work with because it's a thing we don't want to feel most deeply as animals. We don't want to feel shame, embarrassment, humiliation. And when you think about it, walking onto a stage, that's sort of um, a cue for all of those feelings. And so we actually did put the audience on the stage as well. And so immediately the audience, the first audience, there are two audiences, I should say, in the Bing Theater. There's one on stage and then one opposite that audience in the house. So when the black curtain opens, they see each other for the first time. So there's a very strong feeling of being looked at, being looked at looking, Mm -hmm. um, and being at least aware of all the feelings that come with not being allowed to observe passively. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being on stage is a is a potentially humiliating act. It's it's for most of us. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I can't even public speak. I mean I outside of being a teacher and saying when homework's due, that's about it. You know, I, I it's horrifying. So obviously I'm not there with you all on stage. Uh, but these these feelings um, got embodied in, let's say, this idea of the alien, which is a fascinating but sometimes um, long-winded uh, subject that I don't want to go into too much. But uh, we use the idea of the alien as um, oneself being foreign to oneself. Does it make sense? No. How can I say that better? The alien is a kind of...
3: It's a surrogate.
2: That, thank you. <laughs> That's much better. You know? Yeah. 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 Go on.
3: Um, In terms of this silver, the black, the wicked dance, there were a number of aliens that were specific to the characters in the play. And then there was this idea of kind of, I think, the central alien or the alien. And that is kind of implicitly really complicated, but it's sort of like looking at like a shimmery curtain that picks up light from different angles and reflects that light back out in an array of, you know, beams or angles. Um, and uh, part of the humor of the play at times was, you know, pushing that alien around, having fun with the alien, toying with the alien, some of the more heartbreaking moments. Turning away from the alien, betraying the alien, denying the alien, judging it, casting it aside or casting it out. Um you know, it wasn't necessarily like a character that stepped into the light with a big grey head and those black egg kind of eyes, (laughs) per se. I wish. Um, (laughs) Next time. (laughs) We can all refer to our emoji menu for that guy. (laughs) Very cute. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, There are all kinds of aliens, and there's a lot of alienating and distancing in contemporary life, certainly. Um, And what the silver, the black, the wicked dance definitely has are like six characters in particular who are coming undone mm-hmm. or who have been undone and and looking for a vessel.
2: Yeah. And, and people who've been pushed out of this notion of what home is or mm-hmm. place or mm-hmm. land, often by their own doing. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the play was attempting at least to talk about these really contemporary conversations of... Um, um, not being able to fit in, of having hatreds, of having a desire to consume another person, to be consumed, to be confused about that, um, and specifically race, which is such a tortured conversation in the moment. And it's something that is, I feel, very complex and got, I think, interlaced, if that's a word, into the dialogue pretty thoroughly um, mm-hmm. without being explicit all the time, which is which it isn't um, in life. And uh, most of my work does deal with race and class. I think those are the two things that I'm pretty preoccupied with.
1: And there was, in in several of the characters, there were different moments uh, of like, it was like they were privileged. It's not like they would say, I'm privileged to have this moment where I can feel alien, but in the, like, as a takeaway, there were moments where it was like, this person is feeling shame. And it's clearly a, pri- like, they've decided to take the privilege to feel mm-hmm. that shame. Okay. Absolutely. And, like, that was, I mean, again, I didn't read about the play beforehand, and then I read about it afterwards, and I was like, yeah, I got, I got that.
2: Mm. Yes. Yeah, I was so. a good audience member. <laughs> you were. You you know, were. But,
1: but, You're uh, feeling. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it, uh, it was kind of a, an amazing moment and uh, that that I felt like I was picking up. And, uh, Thank I mean. You. But that's kind of like the idea of the work on some level. Or if there's a central idea, you talked about predation
2: mm. and the privilege of shame. Yeah, I think the I, we started with the idea of shame, something right. that I was interested in thinking about, not only just as a sort of like part of the zeitgeist, but particularly with Brene Brown's work, which I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um She's an author who writes about shame in American culture in a very populist way, which I think is is wonderful on the one hand, but then reading the material um, seems to, and I may be wrong about this, but seems to not engage questions of race, questions of privilege, uh, questions of class. They seem to fall away in this, what I think is one of the biggest um, aspects of being an American at the at the moment is is dealing with these especially being an artist you know we don't talk about these things we don't talk about class in the art world we don't talk about privilege to from my point of view all artists are privileged whether that's educationally or otherwise and I think it's a conversation we really have to have uh, and so in working on this play I, I was very aware that I am going to be speaking to an art audience. I'm not speaking to any random group of people. These are the creative class members, and I want to talk about things that we don't talk about uh, because I think that's what theater essentially does. It is a mechanism for excavating things that are in the deep uh, unconscious, but also things that we just can't say at the table, so to speak. So we I started with um this question why are americans and when i say americans i mean really americans people who live reside in the united states so ashamed what's what's at the core what's at the crux of that and then of course that opens out to race that opens out to privilege that opens out to class money um white privilege Mm -hmm. um loss of that privilege change and the way that we consciously or unconsciously negotiate, fight, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. resist, um, bicker, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, And it was was a very complicated process because obviously uh, our cast is intergenerational, uh, interracial, if you will, um, uh, interdisciplinary, and so there was a lot of painful discussion I thought was very um, useful.
1: You're listening to The People on k 1630 AM. Before we get back to our conversation, let's listen to another short excerpt of the audio from The Silver, The Black, The Wicked Dance. This is the last speech by Paul Outlaw, who plays the forced entertainer.
5: What, what would he say if he had the mic, hm. if he didn't have to hit the mark each and every time, pure elegance, ha, maybe, I don't know, is, um, is, this, is this thing on? say, hey, well, let's see, today I went to Trader Joe, and as usual, there was no parking, well, there's your message right there, more parking, so, yeah. Hey, you don't have a piece of gum, do you? <laughs> and I'm jealous of him. He gets to stop running. I'm jealous of him. He gets to say, you know what? I think I'll just sit right here. And he gets to check his mail. Check it because it's right in there right now. Someone is saying, you, 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 and I want to scream back, me, 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 and there's our mind meld, ma'am. Well, they want to contact us, the little green men. Now, they were going to text, but they never did figure out the VCR, so it might be a couple of light years before they get to the cell phone. Yes, the aliens! You know, they're not what you think. They're dumb. But they are dumb motherfuckers. They're like plankton. I mean, they look at this place, and they're like, oh, what the hell is it? Is it an ice cream cone? (laughs) No, man. It's a bonbon. Well, What's an eyeball. It's an eyeball that has you under surveillance, constant surveillance. So you better eat it. Eat it, motherfucker, before it eats you. Bite two. This is just for the special people. I hate you, (laughs) aliens. I hate you with everything I got. No, I love you, bullshit. I love you. Now, why else would I still be here if I didn't love you and want you to love me? Oh, he's so funny. You know, he's just like us, except he's an alien. Oh, he's an alien? He's so cool. He's my friend, too. Oh, yes, I am. I am your friend. I will do anything for you. I will wait at the stoplight. I will keep taking my medication. I will wear clothing. I will stay sane every day. I will work on that. I promise. Because you matter. You matter to me. Even though you know what you've done. Oh, yes, you do. And you know there's nothing you can do to take it back, so stop. Stop right there. Uh, Don't reach in your purse. (laughs) Don't reach for your gun. Please. Please. Henceforth, friends, I shall wait for what is real to come get me. This will be my strategy. I shall seem old. I will say things like, oh, 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 yeah, that's right. I I remember now. But I shall be keeping score and things will not go in your favor. This is me. Never be satisfied, the third. Also known as.
3: For us in Godawful National Theater and given the sort of historical trajectory of the kind of theater that we are all passionate about and, you know, invested in like working within as far as like constructivist approaches to theater and certainly like experimental theater and things of that nature, um, we are attempting to bring what we think are the most immediate issues to the stage and um you know the physicalizing of that I think in a way really requires all of us to throw ourselves in to dark and scary places uh maniacally hilarious places and in terms of shame And the fact that that's so kind of innately tied, especially in a place like Los Angeles, to um, seeing bodies that are then immediately compared in some capacity.
2: You talked about, uh, we both have read Brene Brown, and you talked about Daring Greatly. That is the title of one of her books. And your response to that. And your perhaps complicated response to the Mm -hmm. idea of shame that I think the silver the black the wicked dance was attempting in some part to Mm -hmm. excavate
3: Mm -hmm. my role in that too was geared toward addressing expectations and assumptions around my race my gender my age in part because I have identified so directly with a lot of what Brene Brown talks about in Daring Greatly, which is a book essentially talking about the courage to stand up to shame, the courage to resist shame, and to discover one's self-worth. Um, I come from a family full of addicts and am pretty well versed at 27 with you know, the rhetoric of AA and Al-Anon and these kinds of things which in their own right address the struggle of living and questions of how to love oneself enough to recover and find compassion that's all amazingly helpful and essential and true and real and today more so than ever but for me um in the silver the black the wicked dance and in terms of this question of shame and this question of myself um I did place this book daring greatly kind of at the center of my my work and my struggle because ultimately um it's a book written by a white woman from Texas. And um, I'm a white woman from Southern California uh, with a whole lot of privilege and a very articulate understanding of how shame has impacted my life, um, how shame drives and derails any kind of creative practice or, you know, intellectual practice I might want for myself. And yet, I understand too, uh, that I have a complete lack of understanding of the shame of another person. And so that kind of just really immediately creates a lot of tension around the idea that I could achieve a sense of self-worth. I mean, I think that um, all of the characters in the show very aggressively ask what that self-worth could even consist of, what it could look like, and what could it sound like, and ultimately end up kind of reeling, um, reeling out of that question in a way, recoiling out of that question, so to speak. So, um, you know, self-care, self-worth, bridging the divide that um, exists between a sense of, I don't know, inner peace and then, of course, the scary sense of shame on the other side of that um, is... Is it's not necessarily a dance that um, one can do alone, and and part of what I think is problematic about the tone of daring greatly is that it expects that people don't perpetuate shame, and that people are sort of passively able to observe, maybe in a kind of mindful manner, um, you know, the ramifications and manifestations of feeling shame, Um, I mean, ultimately what surrounds shame is anger and violence and neglect, which really the book doesn't touch on. Um,
2: Nor does it really touch on the violence that's the foundation of this country. Exactly. And I think that's what we were trying to do in the play, I think, is to um, reawaken that conversation within the body of um, each actor, and each actor plays Um, various characters at the same time. So Mm -hmm. for example, someone might play their ancestor, um, a married man, um, a married woman, uh, someone that they fear they will become all in the same scene. Mm -hmm. So they'll switch uh, very, very quickly between these these personae and become so dangerous, I think, in, a, in, in some ways to the actor and to the audience that we actually had, and we should mention, the, a wonderful artist and shaman, Edgar Frias, sitting in the audience, um, kind of recycling, catching, channeling all of these fragmented mm-hmm. aspects of self okay. that were uh, popping off the... Mm-hmm actors in midst of their performances. And I also had a teacher of mine who is a medium come to the show. I didn't know she was going to come. And she actually said, oh, wow, I, I had some moments there where I saw a lot of entities um, in the space, a lot of spirits in the space, which doesn't surprise me. And Edgar, um, I think, uh, can verify that, that there was so much flying around in, um in in the performance that it it can be very ungrounding and very unsettling mm-hmm. because we don't talk about these things right we don't want to visit them
3: right and it's it's not it you know it really isn't natural or normal to um as a viewer um sit in the presence of trauma sit in the presence of historical trauma. Uh, or the telling of that historical trauma, right? The acting out of that historical trauma. And part of the rehearsal process and a lot of the um ancestral mining work is, you know, geared toward meeting that trauma.
2: Yeah, I think that's really the point of the the piece. Mm-hmm. Is is thinking about that trauma. Mm-hmm. I think you said that very very well.
3: Yeah, we, you know, we we were all really angry characters you know and and feverish and Asher's characters are always aggressive um and always searching yeah that's really 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 indicative of the characters that Asher writes
2: it that's true and i think that's possibly because i come from that Mm -hmm.
3: and i understand
2: that and i think a lot of americans do understand the language of violence very well and uh, it makes one feel powerful at the same time as it exposes Mm -hmm. one Uh, and it really i think does well up out of a deep sense of shame and even self-hatred that we haven't dealt with well in this country. We've medicated, perhaps, but we haven't addressed nakedly. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think I would like to continue working on in my um, very abstract experiential plays. Yeah. So Chelsea, I know you as an, an artist, a visual artist, and a performer, and an actor now. And I'm really curious about your work as a poet and as someone who performs, I would say, dance no do you, mm-hmm. do you, Can you talk a little bit more about your broader self as a performer and a, and a writer and an artist?
3: I've managed to assign myself something like a five-year plan, which I think is ultimately going to be more like a 10- or 20-year plan, and it is to go about theorizing the body of the work that I do which for now has been this prompt of wanting to theorize the writing body and kind of in parallel theorize the artist body um and this doesn't come from a place of having uh you know the pretense of any kind of innate um understanding of my body or other bodies but um Movement and body work, energy work is really central to my understanding of, um, you know, the creative capacity, shall we say. And um, I'm also, you know, an intellect that's pretty dissatisfied and disappointed (laughs) most of the time with, um, I guess, maybe kind of the contemporary critical discourse around bodies and identities and, um, you know, signification, kind of at large. Why? Well, I mean, I tend to feel a resounding sense of um, violence and exclusivity, even within um, the realm of say, a queer theory or, you know, specifically, um, you know, identity politic, um, and not because I historically tend to be of the class that gets to draw the lines around what is acceptable and unacceptable or real and not real. Um, it's, it's, to do with, um, specifically to do with language, and specifically to do with like the language of theory. And, um, you know, this is like, very much an academic kind of issue. um, But ultimately, that I believe um, academia is about displacement and unsettling, um, you know, thinking and thinkers. And so kind of as A response to what I think of as a whole lot of contempt and animosity. Um, I explore movement in my own work and with my collaborator Caitlin Adams in the Best Friends movement ensemble and um, certainly poetry is a great tool in terms of exploring um, you know language patterns that can exist in and around this sort of field that I've established in my mind uh, around um, just kind of recording affect, um, moving through affect, and attempting to have a kind of contemplative practice around what affect manifests in terms of of the body. It's, it's as close as I can get to feeling like I'm up to creative work that has efficacy. And uh, I'm just not someone who takes the creative acts all that lightly. And I'm certainly not someone who's interested in aligning um, my own work with uh, any kind of market sort of standard or expectation so as a multidisciplinary worker as you know a multidisciplinary kind of mind it's really important to me to look for alternative spaces and safe spaces Um, I'm lucky enough to not have really ever experienced a whole lot of adversity what with my kind of social um avatar so to speak as like a, a young white woman i you know from southern california i ha- i really haven't endured <laughs> um a whole lot of class or race kinds of hatred directly but i'm aware of it and i i want to be aware of it and i want to work in a way that is aware and that supports just the opportunity to feel compassion and love. We're going to
0: put a period on love and then I'm going to say this. Azure Harpin and Chelsea Rector, thank you for joining us. the oh, oh, thanks people. for being on the show, guys. Thank you. It's wonderful. Yeah. You've been listening to the people on K-Chung 1630 a.m. I'm Ben White
1: and I'm Matthew Timmons. We're going to go out with a song by Los Angeles band Zigzags from their recent EP, Slime. But first, I want to remind you that you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. You can go there, find all the past shows. You can review the show, you can rate us, and you can subscribe to the podcast.
0: Please do all of those things. It helps us out quite a bit. Uh, Or you can just go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page.
1: You can find us also anywhere else that you uh, find podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We have a page on SoundCloud. And at SoundCloud, you can find... Other recordings from various readings and other goings-on here in Los Angeles.
0: You can also just find us on Facebook and uh, find out about what's going on in the show and uh and like us if you want.
1: And our theme music, as always, is Ockfiff by Lewis Keller. And now here's the title track from Zigzag's recent EP, Slime.
4: You look right on my studs and cool out. This turns into metal!